If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. You can have it on your phone, hard copy Bible. Also on uh, calvarywestlake.org slash words. Uh, you can get the scripture for tonight. You can also get all the lyrics and all of that if you didn't catch that earlier. I uh, want to give a special shout out to the VIP section up on the lawn. Love you guys. Thanks for hanging up there. And, and, and you know, if you haven't noticed, we're just kind of trying to figure out how to space everyone out, right? Um, so we can do church and do it in a healthy way and do it in a way that honors um, not only your health, of our church, uh, but also what we've been asked to do. And so thanks for flexing with us. Thanks for being up there. Uh, as we continue to grow this summer, we're just going to continue to figure out how to do it. Uh, and then I want to say welcome to those of you watching on YouTube right now. Uh, I know not everyone's able to be here. For some of you, it's health concerns. For some of you, it's distance. Uh, and whatever that is, we just want to know that we haven't forgotten about you. We love you. We see you. And we long for the day when we can all be together. Everyone here say amen. Amen. All right. Well, hey, if you've got your Bibles, again, we're in Mark chapter 1. Uh, and, and if you've not been with us this summer, really, we've just been taking the slowest walk through the Gospel of Mark ever, okay, right? Um, we are still in Mark 1. If we continue apace, uh, we will be done with Mark in 108 weeks. Um, and so um, that's not the plan necessarily uh, as much as we're just trying to take a real slow walk through this Gospel and, and really try to see who Jesus is and what he has to do. And, and here's the reason I think this is so important. I, I think for those of you that even grew up in church, that there's this thing that can happen where you just kind of get so used to ideas about Jesus that you don't actually spend time to think about who Jesus actually was. And so you get so familiar with the concepts of Christianity that Jesus actually gets lost in the midst. And so our hope this summer is just to kind of reacquaint ourselves with Jesus, relook at the gospel, uh, and if nothing else, just allow the word of God to speak into the moment we're in. And so uh, once again, Mark chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 21. Uh, and once again, we won't get far, but we'll see. Uh, verse 21. It says they, and this is Jesus and his disciples, as they went to Capernaum. So um, if you remember a couple weeks ago, it says that Jesus begins his ministry and he begins in a place called Galilee. And Galilee, we talked about it, is kind of this backwater place that nobody has heard of. It's not important. You never would have of Galilee or the Sea of Galilee if it weren't for Jesus. If it weren't for the Bible, you never would have heard of this place. You never would have went to this place. You never would have vacationed in this place. You never would have spent thousands of dollars on a plane ticket to go to this place. It was unheard of. No one cared about it. It wasn't significant in the ancient world. It wasn't significant to anyone. And yet Jesus begins his ministry in the Galilee region, this region around this Sea of Galilee that no one's ever heard of. And what we talked about a few weeks ago is that if you want to be faithful or if you want to be fruitful in public, meaning if you want God to use your life in awesome ways, you need to begin by being faithful in private. Like if you want God to give you big things with your life, you need to be faithful with the small things. And what I want to point out today is that they go from sort of the villages and towns of Galilee into this place called Capernaum. Now Capernaum in the region of Galilee was one of the only major cities. Capernaum at the time probably had 10,000 plus people, which doesn't seem like a big city to us, but in the ancient world is a massive hub of commerce, of wealth, of power, of geography. And so here's Jesus. He begins in Galilee, this kind of nowhere, backwater, very few people, very few fame, very little to do, not much attention there. He goes from there, and he goes into Capernaum. But then as you watch the gospel, what Jesus is going to do is he's going back and forth between these big cities and these small towns. Sometimes he's talking to thousands of people. Other times he's talking to two people. Sometimes he's in major metropolitan areas. And sometimes he's in this tiny little space where no one's ever heard of. And we don't even know biblically where the town Jesus was ministering was. And here's my point. 
I think if you want to live and love like Jesus, you have got to become the type of person who's comfortable doing what Jesus did, going back and forth between the big moments of your life that everyone recognizes as awesome and the tiny little moments that don't, you don't even think are significant. That's what it means to follow Jesus, to go back and forth between these moments. There's these little moments that don't seem significant, where your mom asked you to pick up some groceries or, or where you had to text a friend back or where you were trying to slow down and listen to a friend of yours at work. And then there are these big public moments, right, where you're successful, where you're fruitful, where you get a promotion, where you get recognition. And what it means to follow Jesus is to be able to do what Jesus did. That in these big moments, you show up and you have the courage of your convictions and the courage of the Holy Spirit to be there. But then in those little moments that no one ever knows about, that no one ever talks about, that if they made a movie about your life, they would be omitted because they don't seem that significant. It's those little moments where you show up. And it's the capacity to go back and forth between both of those. Because if you ever think you get to a place where you're publicly fruitful and everyone thinks you're awesome, and that means you give up on those tiny little moments where you love people and you care about what's happening and you're focused on the moment, you've missed it. Because Jesus goes back and forth. It says in 21, they go to Capernaum. And then it says, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. And the, people of the, and the people there were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who has authority and not as the teachers of the law. So, so Jesus' ministry has begun, and, and a couple weeks ago he was proclaiming the good news of, of the gospel, proclaiming the reality that the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God Almighty is here. It's closer than you think. It's in your midst. It's bubbling up from below. And then last week we see him as he's starting to call these disciples to himself. And then he enters into the synagogue, and he begins to teach. And in fact, three different times here it mentions he begins to teach. He is teaching. He taught them. And here's what I want you to see about the ministry of Jesus. And this is significant that you understand about Jesus. The ministry of Jesus was a teaching ministry that was accompanied by miracles. The ministry of Jesus, what we're going to see throughout the entire Gospel of Mark, if we make it that far, but what you'll see as you read the Gospels, is that the ministry of Jesus is this teaching ministry accompanied by miracles. And here's why this matters. We are about to see the first miracle Jesus does in the Gospel of Mark. We're about to see Jesus do something miraculous, do something spectacular. And the temptation for you is to think that the most amazing thing that Jesus did was do miracles. And the reason you and I think that is because we don't see miracles so often. We see teaching all the time. And so miracles seem special and teaching doesn't seem so significant. And yet here's what I need you to know. The core of Jesus' ministry was not miracles. The core of Jesus' ministry was teaching. And here's why I think that's so. That's not just like a random statement. The reason is because we need to understand that miracles don't have the staying power that teaching does. Like, let me give you a few examples, especially for those of you that kind of know the Bible and know the miracles of Jesus. Remember, Jesus does a ton of miracles where he heals sick people. But do you ever realize the people who were healed by Jesus when they were sick? Remember, they got sick again someday. Like Jesus heals their illness, and yet it's not a permanent healing. They're going to get sick again someday. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. If you know that story, he's dead. He's in the grave. He's not sort of dead. He's toast, right? He's in the grave, and Jesus raises him. But Lazarus has to die a second time. It's like round two, right? Like that happens for Lazarus. You think of Jesus. You think of him, um, you think of him feeding the 5,000. Right, this miracle where he has these like little bits of fish and bread and he feeds 5,000 people. You, you know the bummer? Like those people were hungry the next day still. 
See, miracles don't have staying power. Miracles don't last. Like like you think of Jesus allowing Peter to walk on the water. What an amazing thing. Do you know the next time Peter came up to the lake, he still needed a boat? Like like this is how miracles work. Miracles are, are this thing. I'll say this, miracles impress for a moment. Like in the moment, miracles are cool. And I think we would all say miracles are cool. Like even this moment, I said, I'm, I'm going to do a miracle. Fire's going to fall from the sky. And fire actually fell from the sky. That would be really cool. You, you would talk about that for a while. You would think that was amazing. If tonight there was someone who was sick and we prayed over them and God healed them in that moment, that would be pretty amazing. Like I don't want to deny that miracles happen. And I don't want to deny that miracles are powerful. I just want to insist that miracles weren't the point of Jesus' ministry because miracles last for a moment. The miracles in Jesus' ministry were only to authenticate, to affirm, to verify his teaching. So Jesus would teach something and he'd go, if you don't believe I have the authority to teach this, watch this miracle. See, miracles impress for a moment, but here's what I need you to know. Ideas endure for a lifetime. Ideas endure for a lifetime. Like this miracle that Jesus did impresses people for like 30 seconds and then they move on. But the ideas Jesus gave us, the ideas that he taught can endure for a lifetime. Like, let me put it to you this way. Um, so we happen to be outside here, and um, I learned some things this week about being out here because uh, I was asking some of our facility people, um, tell me about what's out here um, when it comes not to the stuff we've built, but to the trees. And, and I learned we have, like, some olive trees, which are very good if you look over there. Uh, I learned these are actually pear trees right here. Who knew? Never seen a pear on them, but that's what I'm told. And, and then the tree I want you to focus on is right here in the middle, these ones. Uh, these are eucalyptus trees. And, and, and if you look at these trees and how, like, big they are in the, in the, in the, in the scope of this, like, these aren't newly planted trees. And yet if you think about it, I want you actually to look down at your hand right now. Look at your pinky finger. Look at the thumb, look at the fingernail on your pinky finger. A seed for a eucalyptus tree is half of the size of your pinky finger. And yet it turned into that. How did something like this turn into that? It happened because it was planted in the ground and not over days, not over weeks, not over months, not even over years, but over decades, it grew to be that. And here's why I say this. Because that's what ideas do in your mind. Again, miracles will impress you for a moment. But here's what an idea does. God plants an idea in your heart and it grows for decades. Like, like play with this idea for a second. The Bible says that you were created in the holy image of God. That you have value. That you have worth. That you have meaning. That there is dignity about your life. And even if no one else thinks you have dignity or worth, and even if you don't think you have dignity or worth, God says you are created in my holy image, that you are something special in the universe. That is an idea that if God plants into your heart and you allow that to grow for decades, it will change the way you see yourself and every other human being you've ever met. God looks at you and he says, I will provide everything you've ever needed in the moments you need it, not before, not after, not too little, not too much. I will give you exactly what you need when you need it. If you allow God to plant that seed of an idea in your heart, it will grow over the next couple decades. Allow, think, think on that for four decades. The idea that God will never not give you exactly what you need in the moment that you need it. Like Jesus is going to teach this idea that every single Christian here, if you call yourself a Christian, has the Holy Spirit of God living in them. And God has given you spiritual gifts, abilities, passions, and a unique role in the kingdom of God. That there is a mission no one here can accomplish but you. Like let that idea sit in your heart and grow for decades and decades and decades. Do you know that Jesus plants this idea that you are fully, finally forgiven on the cross? Like completely? Not mostly forgiven, not somewhat forgiven, not provisionally forgiven, but fully forgiven. 
And I just wonder if for some of you, that idea just needs to grow in your heart for the next few decades, that you would just allow the idea Jesus teaches. Like Jesus, the final words we have of him in the Gospel of Matthew come out like this. He says, and behold, I'm with you to the very end of the age. Like there's an idea that you could sit on for the rest of your life and let grow in your heart, that God's never gonna leave you, he's never gonna forsake you. What's my point in all of this? My point is to say that the miracles of Jesus, the spectacular things of Jesus, aren't actually the things that change your life. Here's what changes your life. The teaching of Jesus. The truth of Jesus. Jesus has something to say. And even if you don't realize it, you have internalized some of those statements. And because you have internalized some of those statements, you have started to grow in ways you cannot even imagine. You see, spiritual growth is not found in these spectacular moments. Those are cool moments. There's cool moments on mission trips. There's cool moments at camp. Maybe there's even been cool moments for you where you've come to a church service like this and God's rocked your heart in a special way and those are good things we should celebrate. Again, I'm not down on miracles tonight, but here's my point. The way Jesus has us grow here is that Jesus is doing this teaching ministry where he's planting these seeds in our heart. So here's the spiritual formula. For those of you who are like math people, here's the spiritual formula for growth that I really believe is true. I didn't come up with this. I stole this, so don't give me credit. That grace plus truth over time equals growth. That the grace of God that invites you into his family, the grace of God that says you're welcome here even though you're a mess, the grace of God that says you're welcome in God's family even though you failed in every way, that welcomes you in. And then God's truth is applied to that where God has something to say to you. Like you're not just here tonight to feel something, you're here to think when grace and truth come together over time. And again, not minutes, not hours, but days and weeks and decades. When that happens, you grow. So so what's our hope for you when you come into a place like this? That the hope is that just like in Jesus' teaching ministry, that you would listen to the word of God. And that even as someone like me or Pastor Brian Williams or anyone else is up here teaching, the goal isn't to be like, wow, that was a great teaching or "Eh, he was kind of off tonight, right? Like that's not your goal. You're not here to assess. You're here to see what tiny little seed of an idea God might want to plant in your heart. And that God might use that idea over the next decade, two decades, five decades to grow into something beautiful in your life. The ministry of Jesus was a teaching ministry and it was verified by miracles. Go on this way in verse 23. If you look down at the text, it says, just then, uh, it just says, just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out. When the Bible uses the words like impure spirit, this is another way it's referring to demonic activity. There's some people who want to give really crisp and clean definitions for all the different kind of spirits or powers or principalities in the Bible. And I just don't think the Bible gives us that clear of a definition. I think it says it's an impure spirit. What does that mean? It means it's something wicked. It means it's something non-physical. And it means in this case, it is something that is possessing him inside of him, inside of this individual We do not believe, nor do we teach that a spirit, a demon, a devil can possess a believer. We absolutely believe it can possess someone who does not have the Holy Spirit of God living in them. And that is what has happened to this person. Now, I want you to think about the fact that this is actually a common thing in Jesus' ministry. Again, if you grew up in church, the idea that Jesus cast out demons seems so common to you that you might not actually realize this. That before Jesus' ministry, like the entire Old Testament, there's really not a lot of this going on. There's little hints and little pieces, and you can find it in various places, but it's not a significant part of the Old Testament story. And then if you look forward after Jesus' ministry, there's a little bit of this in the book of Acts, but no references to it whatsoever in the epistles of the New Testament, the letters in the New Testament. So so there's this really interesting thing, and perhaps a question I want to ask you tonight. Why does it seem like demonic activity was different 
in Jesus's ministry? Like, have you ever asked that question? Why does it seem like every time Jesus is around someone, there's a demon to cast out? And yet you've gone through your entire life and you've never seen anyone that has a clear demon in them. Maybe you have. Maybe that's actually been your experience. And I don't want to deny that because I think that can happen. But, but here's my question for you. Why were things different in Jesus' ministry? And I've wrestled with this question. I don't even know that the Bible gives us like the clearest answer ever. But, but here's what I can glean from what I see in the scriptures. And here's what I would suggest to you, not just based on a guess, but based on what I see God doing in the scriptures. What I want to observe is that when Jesus came into this earth, when the light of the world stepped down into darkness, Jesus becomes incarnate and steps into this world. He is fulfilling God's mission. Like God has a mission. You know that Jesus wasn't an afterthought. Jesus wasn't a random thing. This was the mission of God all along to send his son into this world, to take on human flesh, to die for our sins, to rise from the dead. Jesus is accomplishing the mission of God. And just like any time someone is accomplishing a mission, the enemy of that mission will see the advance and will come against it. Like this is the way I want to put it to you today. The advance of God brings out the attack of the enemy. This is what I am convinced of. Why were things different in Jesus' time? Why around Jesus did there seem to be so much demonic activity and so much possession and so much casting out of demons? Because the advance of God brings out the attack of the enemy. And again, here's what I'm convinced of. That that principle was true in Jesus' time. It was true in Jesus' life. And then I just want to put this before you tonight. I think this is true for you. I think this is true for your life. I think if you are serious about following Jesus, I think if you are serious about laying down your life and picking up your cross and following Jesus, you will begin to encounter resistance to the degree that you have decided to lay down your life and give it all up so that you can follow Jesus. Like here's what I'm convinced of, that the person here tonight who said, you know what, I'm gonna start studying the Bible because I wanna be serious about what the word of God has to say, I'm convinced that Satan hates that. He doesn't just mildly dislike it. If you decide the Bible is serious to you, Satan hates that. And he's going to start lying to you. He's going to start whispering lies into your ear, maybe even bringing in someone into your life to whisper or speak a lie over you. When you begin to think seriously about the Bible, when the purposes of God are advancing in your life, that's when the enemy attacks. When the moment you decide that my heart's going to be courageous, I'm no longer going to be afraid to talk to people about Jesus. I'm no longer being afraid to just stand up and say what I believe based on the word of God. I believe that's the moment that Satan wants to discourage you. When God's purposes are advancing in you, that's when Satan wants to discourage you. I think there are some of you who have made a commitment at some point in your life toward purity. I'm going to live in purity. I'm going to live pure in every different way. Not just in sexual purity that we talk about, but in every part of my life. And I actually believe it's those moments where you make that commitment to purity that Satan wants to tempt you more than ever. And you know why I know that's true? Because some of you I've worked with all through high school and you know exactly what the experience was like when you were at winter camp or you were on a mission trip or you were in some powerful moment of faith and you decided, I'm giving it up, I'm walking in purity, I'm walking in faithfulness to God, and then it felt like you came home and temptation hit you like a freight train, right? That's what Satan does. When God's purposes are advancing, that's when Satan attacks I have to wonder if there's anyone here who's ever started to actually believe the gospel. You know how freeing it is when you actually start to believe the gospel is true about your life? Like you're not just sort of forgiven, you are forgiven. It's not like God's sort of like, we'll see, he's fully forgiven you. When you start to believe that, you ever notice that's when Satan loves to drudge up your past? What happened with your boyfriend from high school? What happened with your friends back in the day? What happened last week? What happened last summer? You ever notice that's what Satan does? So, see, this is the attack of Satan. When he sees God advancing in your life, this is when he begins to attack in your life. 
And here's what I just get so concerned about sometimes for our lives. Um, I think the strategy of Satan in the West, uh, maybe particularly in a place like Southern California, is to kind of do things in a subtle and quiet way that, that we don't always see. And so we don't see someone frothing at the mouth here, screaming out in pain because they're possessed by a demon. And I sometimes fear that's because Satan doesn't have to. Because we've taken Jesus so casually that he doesn't even see God advancing, so he doesn't have to attack. And here's just a question that's haunted me. And maybe this question will haunt you tonight. I actually hope it haunts some of you. I hope it bothers some of you. Here's my question. Like, does Satan even have to bother with you? Or are you too busy sabotaging yourself? Like, does Satan even have to come after you? Does Satan even have to tempt you? Or do you just give in to your sin because it's habit now? Does Satan even have to discourage you? Or have you just invited a bunch of people you call friends into your life who discourage you and Satan doesn't even need to try? Uh, like, like do, do you even need Satan to lie to you? Or have you just been so comfortable in the lies that you've started believing about yourself that your dad taught you or your mom taught you or someone taught you that you're just always gonna live in that so Satan doesn't even have to try? Like for some of you, it's not even that Satan has to accuse your soul. You just play the tape back on the worst moment of your life so many times. Satan doesn't even have to step in because you're sabotaging yourself. My, my, my question for us is, are we going to take Jesus seriously enough that Satan sees us as a threat? Uh, are you going to be the type of person that when you wake up in the morning, Satan and his demons go, oh no, he's up. Oh no, she's up. We have to deal with this individual because he's advancing the purposes of God. Uh, I believe with all my heart that Jesus sees so much demonic activity because the purposes in the kingdom of God are advancing through his life. And I don't know about you, but I want to be the type of person who has the same. Not because I want to invite evil or oppression or anything like that into my life, but because I want, to, I want to end my life. I want to end my life someday and look back and go that I pushed back the powers of darkness in this world. That I didn't just accept that things were the way they were. I stood up and I pushed back the powers of darkness in this world. I followed Jesus. I proclaimed him boldly. And whatever came at me came at me because God was advancing even as the enemy was attacking. It goes on this way in verse 23. It says, just then the man in their synagogue, who was possessed by, uh, or I'm, I'm sorry, 23, we, we already covered that. We talked about the impure spirit. Go, stay in 23. Sorry about that. Um, I actually want to point out the first part. There's a man in their synagogue who's possessed by this impure spirit. Um, and if you don't know, the synagogue in the ancient world um, was kind of effectively like the church. In, in, in really this time of Jesus' life, there's the temple. There's only one temple. It's in Jerusalem. It's on the Temple Mount. If you go to Israel now, you'll see that huge, massive structure in the middle of Jerusalem. That's the Temple Mount. There was only one temple. But there were all these little synagogues. And synagogues weren't perfectly analogous to a church, but they're close enough. And here's what would happen. People would gather together. Someone would teach the law of Moses. They would talk about God. There would be some kind of communal worship going on. And here's just what's so interesting about this particular story. I want to point out that it's not that they were in a synagogue and someone came in who was possessed by a demon. That there was someone who was part of the synagogue community who was possessed by a demon. Like there was someone who was part of their community and yet this evil power had overcome them. There was someone who was with them all the time. They probably all knew this person and yet evil had overcome them. And I think this is actually significant for you to stop and think about. And maybe I'm not speaking to everyone here tonight, but maybe I'm speaking to someone. Um, I don't think Jesus is surprised by this at all. Like, I don't think Jesus is in the least bit surprised that he's here at a synagogue and he encounters someone who is dealing with the presence of evil, not somewhere out there, but in their own heart. Let me put it this way. God is not surprised that church people struggle. Like, God's not surprised. He's not shocked. Do you know God is not surprised that church people struggle with addiction? God's not shocked that church people struggle with anxiety or depression. 
God is not shocked that there's church people here with a history that you don't want to talk about or secrets that no one else knows about. God's not surprised. God's not shocked. God's not offended that you're here. Uh, Again, I might not be speaking to almost anyone here except one person who's just kind of come to believe that if God really knew what you were about, if God really saw that you were part of a church, he would be shocked. Like, Like maybe even the more simple way for some of you to put it is this, is that nobody here is surprised that church people struggle. Like there's no one sitting here tonight who goes, there are people who struggle? Like, 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 look around right now. Look around at all these people. Like, look, look, actually, go, look, turn your head, look around. These are all struggling people, okay? There, there's no person here who's got it all together, who never has insecurity, who never has doubt, who never has struggle, who never has sin. There's no person here who never deals with that. And I think if we want to become the type of church where we're just comfortable being real, and like I talked about a few weeks, repenting and turning from our sin and worshiping God and being together and not being intimidated by real life together, we've got to become the type of place that recognizes that every person you've spoken to tonight is a struggling person. Every person you've talked to tonight has insecurities. Every person you've talked to tonight has sin. And just because it's not your sin doesn't mean it's not serious sin. And we all need to just accept the fact that that's us. Like, here's this man in a synagogue, and he's overcome by this impure, this evil spirit. And like, what a relief that Jesus isn't shocked. What a relief that Jesus understands. It goes on this way in verse 24. This man, this possessed by the evil spirit, says in verse 24, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So, so here's this man speaking, but what seems to be really clear is that it's not the man speaking, it's the e- evil spirit, the demon, the impure spirit that's in him, and he's speaking to Jesus. And one of the things when you read the Bible, I want you to actually notice, this is true in all of the different gospel accounts. Anytime a demon speaks in the gospels, they understand who Jesus is more than anyone else understands who Jesus is. Like the demons seem to understand who Jesus is, even when everyone else is kind of confused about who Jesus is. And so sometimes the best thing to learn, the best thing to learn about Jesus is to look not at what everyone else is saying, but what the demons are saying. And that might sound strange to you, but this is actually reflected in the book of James. In the book of James, there's this comment, like you believe there's one God, good for you. Even the demons believe that. Like the demons see God more clearly than we do. The demons understand, they understand, but they shudder. Like like the difference of knowing good theology isn't being good or bad. It's how we respond to that true theology. And and so here's my point. You you see this demon, and he sees Jesus, and he declares something about Jesus. He sees him, and he knows who Jesus is. Like he's really aware of who Jesus of Nazareth is. And he goes, you've come to destroy me. And he speaks something that's true about Jesus. And and here's what I want to try to point out. I think this demon understands something about the nature of who Jesus is that most of us don't really grasp, that most of us don't really feel in our bones, that most of us have not made a priority in the words and the images we think about with Jesus. Like, here's the way I want to put this. Let me ask you a question, and you don't have to answer to me, but maybe answer in your own mind. What is the one word that you would use to describe God? Like, if I asked you, what was the one word you would use to describe God? Here's what I know. If I, if I just walked down the street and just picked a random person and just held them up and be like, hey, d- describe God in one word. Here's the number one thing. You know what they'd say, right? Love, right? And, and the truth is God is love. The scriptures tell us that God is love. And this is a good thing. You actually don't need to understand. This is a biblical thing, right? If it weren't for the Bible, no one in history before the Bible ever thought God was love. That would have been a laughable, silly concept to them that the God of the universe is love. But that is a Christian idea. But here's what I need you to know. That's not the one word the Bible would use. It's not love. 
Like if you ask, what is God? God is powerful. God's absolutely powerful. He's more powerful than you could possibly imagine. But that's not the word the Bible would use. God is big. I don't know. God's old. God's mean. God's angry. Any of those things. You might think that's what the Bible would say. But here's what I want to show you. Once again, the demon, having a better sense of who Jesus is and the nature of who Jesus is, than sometimes we even do. Can we go back to that verse? We go back to that verse in 24. It says, what do you want with me, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, and here's who you are. You're the Holy One of God. The Holy One. Holy. Like, here's what I'd say. The one word the Bible would use to describe God is holy. The Bible uses a lot of words to describe God. But if there was only one word the Bible could use, that word is holy. Like when we get glimpses in the Bible, and there's a few times we get glimpses into heaven, it sounds like there's angels and beings screaming out of the top of their lungs, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're not shouting love, love, love. They're not shouting mercy, mercy, mercy. They're not shouting wrath, wrath, wrath. They're screaming holy, holy, holy. The holiness of God is something you need to understand if you have any chance of understanding Jesus or who God actually is. And here's the weird thing. Holiness has actually become this pejorative, strange, weird term. We, we almost only use holy when we're using it in the idea of like, oh, he's too holy for me. She's holier than thou. She must be really holy. We almost use it as a joke. But that is the central word that the Bible uses to describe God. But like, let me teach on this for a moment. I want to teach on what three things. This is what holiness is. When we say God is holy and this is the most significant thing about our God, we mean something specific by this. Here's the first thing I mean. God is utterly different. Holiness literally means like separated, like there is a separating, a cutting that happens, a severing where there's this over here and this over here. And when the Bible says God's holy, here's what it's suggesting. God's not like a better version of you. God's not like the better version of the better version of you. God's not the best version of you that there could possibly be. He is utterly different. He's not like you. He's not part of you. God's not part of the universe. The universe isn't God. The earth isn't God. God is this utterly separate thing. He is utterly different than anything else in all of creation. He is utterly different. The second is that he is totally righteous. Like when we say God is holy, what we mean is that everything God does is right Everything God says is right is right. Everything God says is wrong is wrong. When we say that God is holy, we mean that there is nothing that could even get close to God that is not perfectly right. Like the whole story of the gospel, in case you've forgotten, is that Jesus had to die so that we could approach a holy God. Jesus had to suffer for your sins and mine so that we could approach this totally righteous God who is utterly different than us. So holy means that God is utterly different. It means that he is totally righteous. And listen, it means that he is eternally glorified. Because he is totally different than us, because he is completely right, forever and ever, to speak of the holiness of God is to speak of the glory of God. It is to speak of the goodness of God. It is to speak of a God who is so good, so grand, so glorious, that the worst thing you could possibly do is speak his name in vain and joke about him as if he's not more real than your very breath. That's our God. And so here's what I just challenge you to do. Go meditate on that word. Go think on that word. If for some reason holy has become this weird thing because like holiness became this like club to beat you with, I need you to work through that, not, not hit the eject button on the word, okay? You need to deal with that because right at the center of the description of God in the Bible is holy. This holy, holy, holy one. This demon says you are the holy one of God. He understands it. And we would do well to understand that too. It goes on this way in verse 25. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. 
The impure spirit shook the man violently, and it came out of him with a shriek. So, so here's what I need you to know. Um, throughout the Bible, um, the, Jesus encounters demons from time to time, and it's never a struggle. There's never a battle between Jesus and demons. There's always a battle between human beings and demons. There's always like a tension. But Jesus, there's never a struggle. You ever notice Jesus doesn't even have to like concoct something. He doesn't have to pull out like a staff and be like, you shall not pass. Like that's Gandalf, right? That's not Jesus. Jesus, what does he do? Every time he just speaks and it happens. Why? Because Jesus is the holy God who spoke in the beginning and said, let there be light and everything that exists, exists because of him, okay? There's no struggle between Jesus and Satan. There's no struggle between Jesus and the demons of this world. There's no struggle between Jesus and the demons of your heart. There's no struggle between Jesus and what you struggle with deeply. Jesus is conquering. Jesus is strong. Jesus does this. There's no struggle here. The struggle is not for Jesus. This is not hard for him. I want you to actually notice, though, in the text who the struggle is for. The struggle is not for Jesus. The struggle is for this man who is having the sin, who is having the wickedness, who is having the evil inside of him conquered. And I need you to notice this. Like this was undoubtedly a miracle. This is a miracle of Jesus, right? But it wasn't a comfortable moment for everyone. Like we get this, right? Like if we actually rolled in and someone had a spirit and somehow there was an exorcism, it wouldn't be like, that was so cool. It would be weird, okay? If there was like some, someone was shaking violently and then was shrieking at the top of their lungs, it would be uncomfortable for me. It'd be uncomfortable for you. It'd be uncomfortable for the person up here, right? It would be uncomfortable for all of us. Uh, and yet I actually think this is the perfect picture of what spiritual growth looks like. Like, like spiritual growth, this is a wonderful picture of spiritual growth because here's what I'm convinced of. Um, I'm convinced that you can have comfort or you can have growth, but you cannot have both. Like, this is a true thing about your life. You can choose comfortable things, or you can choose um, uncomfortable things. But, but, but you can't have growth with comfort. But like comfort and growth do not sit well together. You can't just sit in what's comfortable, in what's easy, in what doesn't challenge you and grow. You can have comfort or growth, but you cannot have both. Hey, here's what I mean by that. Um, there are sometimes you're going to come to church, and a sermon is going to sting. Or there's something that's said that is going to sting a little. And I need you to know that's a good thing. And as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, you're not called to push that away. You're called to lean into that moment, to sit in your discomfort. Did you know that sometimes you're going to have a conversation with a Christian brother or sister and they're going to call you out for your mess? You're going to call you out for the ways that you think you're pretty awesome, but you're actually not as awesome as you think you are? Your call as a Christian is to lean into those moments, not to lean out to sit in your discomfort, to be okay with discomfort because you can have comfort or you can have growth, but you cannot have both. Do, do you know that this is one of the main reasons, and we're gonna talk about this a ton in the next month or two, um, that we do small groups here at this church? And I wanna speak over you if you're not in a small group. Um, I think there's never been a more important time to be in something like a small group. And listen, if you're not in a formal small group, but you have a group that meets as a small group, fine. I don't care about the words. I care that you have men and women around you who are willing to challenge you. Because here's what I've noticed. It's really easy to impress people you don't know, right? It's really easy to impress people who don't know you. It's really easy to come off well in like two or three conversations to be like, hi, at church, and then move along. But when you start meeting with them every week, when you start praying with them, when you start sharing with them, when you start failing to respond to their text messages, when you start realizing that life is messy, that's where it gets real. And I fear that for some of you, you've avoided small groups because you don't want to be uncomfortable with someone else knowing your business. And here's what I need you to know. You can do that. It's just you're not going to grow. That's what it means. 
Like sometimes you should be in prayer in the morning and you should realize how much you actually need God and how much you're actually desperate for him and it makes you uncomfortable because you actually woke up that morning thinking you were awesome. That's how you grow. This is a moment where Jesus is casting out a demon of this person. He shakes violently. He shrieks. It's uncomfortable for everyone and yet growth happens. Child of God, just be the type of person who leans into uncomfortability, who sits in it, who doesn't need to always be comfortable, who doesn't need to always have everything easy for them. I want you to be that type of person because I want you to grow. Here's how the story concludes, and this is the last verse we'll look at tonight. Verse 27, it says, The people were all amazed, and they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He gives order. He even orders and gives orders to these unpure spirits, these impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly all over the region of Galilee. So I spoke at the very beginning about um, how miracles um, are, are these wonderful things in a moment, but they don't actually have the staying power, right? A lot like miracles impress in a moment, but they don't kind of last forever. And so your, your very honest and valid question tonight might be like, okay, so, it's like, so what? So like this guy had a demon cast out of him 2,000 years ago. What does that mean for me? Tonight, in the middle of July, sitting with a stupid mask on out in this little patio area, what does this mean for me? And here's what I'm convinced of. If it's just this guy got a demon cast out, good for him, then this doesn't really mean much for us. But here's what I'm convinced of, that the ministry of Jesus was setting up a way of living and loving like Jesus. Like the ministry of Jesus wasn't just a bunch of cool stories that you go, wow, and then you move along. It sets up a pattern. It sets up a frequency for our life, a way that we live. And sometimes, okay, let me just give you a way of studying the Bible. Sometimes. Don't do this every time you study the Bible. It'll drive you crazy. But sometimes when you study the Bible and you come across a story that seems weird to you, try to put the story in the simplest way possible. Like try to break down the outline of the story into the simplest way possible. Like you read the story of Jonah and the whale and you're like, this is weird. Okay, what does this mean? Break it down into something really simple. Do it with stories in the Bible you don't understand. And here's what I want to do. I want to break this. I want to outline the story for you, okay? Um, Verse 21, A. Uh, When I say A in a verse, it just means the first part, okay? Verse 21a, the people gather, right? There's a synagogue. People are together. They get together for for synagogue. This is what they're doing. They're together. Um, 21b, the Savior shows up, right? Like Jesus walks into the room. Jesus is like, hi, everyone. I'm Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, Uh, because there were a lot of people named Jesus. But Jesus says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. He shows up. Uh, Number three, uh, 21c, uh, the word is preached. Like Jesus steps into this room where someone else was supposed to be preaching, which is kind of weird. And he goes, um, I'll be teaching today. Okay, don't know what to do with that. That's what he does. 23, the evil is confronted, right? Like there's this person who has this dark power inside of them and the evil is confronted. The light of the world steps into the darkness. The kingdom of darkness is overcome by the glorious light of the gospel. That's what happens to this person. And then the people worship. Like that's what happened in verse 27, right? They went, how is this possible? This man is amazing. Like they're, they're worshiping. They're lifting him up. The people worship. And, and then the gospel is spread, right? They go tell everyone. They're like, can you believe what happened in the synagogue? And suddenly they're talking about Jesus and they're sharing about Jesus. The people gather. The Savior shows up. The word is preached. The evil is confronted. The people worship. And the gospel spread. And here's what I need you to see tonight. If you've not seen it already. What happened in this story should be what happens every single time we gather here for church. Every single time we gather, Jesus shows up. Do you know that before you get here, if you're not part of this, you can come be part of this. We pray half an hour before every service and almost every time someone prays that God would show up, which is like this weird theological thing because God's everywhere, right? And God's everywhere. And yet sometimes he shows up in a special way. 
God was already in this synagogue, and then the Son of God walks in. And I think this is a template for our lives. There is the omnipresence of God where he is everywhere. But then there is a special presence of God where Jesus and his spirit show up in power. And this is our prayer. This is our hope when we gather together. We gather together and then we just ask God in some mysterious way, would you be present with us here tonight? The people gather. The Savior shows up. The word is preached. Like you'll notice, that's just like a non-negotiable for us. Inside, outside, online, on campus, Brian Williams, myself, whoever, someone is preaching the word of God. That's going to happen. The evil is confronted. And, And hear me. It's not the evil is confronted somewhere out there. The evil is confronted in here, in my heart, in your heart, in your mind. The stuff that lingers inside of there. It's not what goes into a man or a woman that defiles them. It's what comes out of them that defiles them. Like Jesus is going to do heart surgery on your heart. When you show up in this place, God confronts the evil within us. The evil is confronted. The people worship. Like you ever notice the power of what happens when God confronts you in a powerful way and you just lose yourself in worship and song and lifting up Jesus. And then after the people worship, the gospel spread. Like this is the goal. Like all of this happens and then you leave this place. You want to know the greatest thing about you leaving this place? It's that you're all going back to places that this church will never go to. Because we can't. But as a church, as a people, we go into homes and we go into businesses and we go into schools and we go into extended families where people can hear about what God is doing in your life. Like I need you to understand what happened in this story in Mark chapter 1 is what should happen every single time we gather. We should gather together. Jesus shows up. The word is preached. We allow him to do heart surgery on us. We respond in worship and we go tell people about him. We don't have all the answers. We don't know everything. We just say, God did something in my life, and I want you to know about this. And here's what I close with. Here's what you need to know. The gathering creates an opportunity for growth. This is what gathering does. Listen, every time we gather, every time we get together, it's an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity for the word to be preached, for the Savior to show up, for him to do something in your own heart where you leave here different. And listen, it's the type of growth that happens slowly but steadily. Like, if I can draw your attention to the eucalyptus tree one more time, can I just point out a fact that is going to be exceedingly obvious to you? You've never actually seen a tree grow. <laughs> like, you can imagine sitting here for like a year just staring at this thing. You wouldn't actually see it grow, right? But it is growing. Like, you never see it grow, but it is growing. And it happens so slowly and so steadily and so progressively that you don't even see it, and yet it happens. And that's what I want to happen here. That every time we gather together, there's growth that happens. And listen to me. I understand when I talk about gathering together, this is a weird time to talk about gathering together, okay? But here's what I'm convinced of. The reason it's a weird time is because we haven't been able to gather together. The reason it's a weird time is because we all recognize at some point along the way in this pandemic that church wasn't just information I received. It wasn't just an opportunity to worship among other people. That there was something powerful and something mysterious and something holy that happens when the people of God get together. And if this all backtracks and we have to go back to our homes and hunker down and, okay, we'll, we'll do that again, but we'll be missing something. And through those of you listening online, there's going to come a day where you get to gather back with us. And here's the truth. It's not that growth can only happen when we gather, but it is that something special happens. And that's why you and me and everyone listening online right now who can't be with us are longing for that day when you can, because we all know something special happens when the people of God gather. So hear me, if you're here tonight, if you're longing for the day that you get to be back here, when it's safe, when it's healthy for you to do that, I want us to be a people who come into this place with expectation. 
But like worship team, come up right now because we're going to sing because that's what happens, right? The word of God is preached and the evil in our heart is confronted and we respond in worship and then we share the gospel. I need us to be a people who come into this place with expectation, not just for another night of church, not just for another night of getting together, but that God is actually going to show up in a powerful way, that he's going to do something in your heart that you might not even be able to explain tonight, but someday you'll look back and realize what God was up to all along. This is what happens when the people of God gather, God grows his people. That's my invitation to you, to come into this place each and every Thursday night with expectation that the God of the universe is going to meet you here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight. Thanks for your word. Thanks that you meet sinners like me. God, thanks that you meet hard-hearted people like me who hear your word and still don't want to obey. Um, God, thanks that you met that man thousands of years ago and that you changed his whole life. God, thanks that you're the God who speaks and your will happens. Father, I just want to pray for someone here who needs a special experience of you tonight, who needs you to show up in that special presence, mysterious, holy kind of way that you do. Don't let her leave here tonight without an encounter of your presence. Don't let him go home and get in his car tonight without knowing that you're here. God, as we sing, I pray you would meet your people in it. Change our lives, change our hearts. In Christ's name, and all God's people said, amen.